welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jason Cherry on February 6th, Lord's Day Service. At Trinity, we operate with the audacious notion that we can be both confessional and Catholic at the same time. Now, let's explain what that means. We want to be confessional, which means we operate by a confession of faith, and not a confession of faith that we have written, but a historic confession of faith. In fact, we operate with a book of confessions, a book of historic confessions, and the Westminster Confession is the Westminster Confession of Faith is our primary document. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it ascribes to pedo-baptism or infant baptism. So we are confessional. But at the same time, we strive to be Catholic. And by that, we mean Catholic with a little c, not the Roman Catholic Church. And our primary application for Catholicity, that is, you know, just trying to get along with other Christians, is is striving for unity. And we're striving for unity largely on the baptism issue. Historically, Reformed churches, Reformed Baptist churches, and Presbyterian churches have divided on the baptism issue. But we operate with this idea that we don't have to divide on the baptism issue. And so while we ascribe to pedo-baptism, while that's our confessional belief, that's the official stance of the church, uh, we do not uh, discriminate against those who uh, wish to delay the baptism of their children until a profession of faith. And so on the baptism issue, we defer to the head of household. And so if they wish to defer baptism until a confession of faith, while we disagree with that position, we will respect the wishes of the parents, and we will not treat those families as second-class Christians. And so as we're doing this study, this is the fourth of a four-week study on baptism. And as we do this, we're, we're operating with the idea that if the two groups which coexist together in our church can understand the other position, then that will increase respect in unity among the people of God. And in our experience, many Baptists look at infant baptism and they, they just look at it and think, well, why do you believe this? Where do you come up with this? And they really have no idea why uh, people believe in infant baptism or why they baptize, baptize by sprinkling. And so really what we're trying to do here is we're trying to, we're trying to explain the pedo-baptist position. And from the very beginning, our goal has not been enantiodrama. Enantiodrama, it's a word that means the adoption of beliefs opposite to those previously held. From the beginning, our goal has not been enantiodrama. Our goal is not to browbeat Baptists until they come around to the pedo-Baptist position. Uh, our goal, uh, rather, has been much more modest. Our goal has been to explain why we believe what we believe. And so we've got a mixed audience for this Sunday school. And so we're really uh, teaching two different groups. 
the, the first group we're teaching are those pedo baptists who, who already believe in infant baptism, and hopefully we're, we're able to encourage your faith and, and, and increase your faith in the Lord. But secondly, we're teaching to those credo-baptists who wish to learn why pedo-baptists think what they think. And so this is the fourth of those Sunday schools. And so we've already done you know, three weeks on this where we tried to lay a lot of the groundwork, kind of the exegetical groundwork. Those have been recorded and they've been published on the podcast by Jed. So you know, we worked pretty quickly through a lot of biblical passages. If you want to go back and listen to that, uh, that, that should be available to you. Our focus today is on the meaning of baptism. So that's kind of like the overall heading, maybe the title of what the focus for today is. It's on the meaning of baptism. And kind of connecting back to what we did in the last couple of weeks, you know, all the different positions agree that baptism has symbolism attached to it. But there's, there's disagreement on exactly what is being symbolized. And so like we discussed a couple of weeks ago, the credo-baptists believe that the mode of baptism, namely immersion, that that mode of baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And as we saw last time, they point to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4 for that Argument. And so that's one of the reasons they want to immerse, because there's kind of a symbolic presentation in the baptism to commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so they believe that the mode of baptism has the symbolism that really does matter. The Pado baptists believe also that the mode of baptism has symbolism that really does matter. And so the mode of baptism in, in the, in the Pado baptist camp primarily is sprinkling. Or, or a pouring water on top of the person. And so the Paedo-Baptists believe that that also has symbolism. And largely that is symbolizing the fact that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on the person. And so that's one of the reasons Paedo-Baptists prefer to sprinkle, because they see in baptism that it represents the Spirit's descending on us, the Spirit's being poured out on us, the Spirit is falling on us. And so we all as Christians know that the mode of baptism does matter because of the symbolism, even if there's some disagreement on primarily what is being symbolized. And so, as we consider the meaning of baptism, let's start by focusing on how, from the Pado baptist perspective, baptism symbolizes the Spirit being poured out on us. Baptism symbolizes the Spirit being poured out on us. And, and, and there's a couple of ways to think about this. And, and what I want to do is I want to present to you four biblical principles. Four biblical principles that I think illustrate how baptism symbolizes the Spirit being poured out on us. So the first principle is just the fact that, that baptism is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. What we see in Scripture is that baptism is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, for example, if you look at Jesus' baptism, for example, in Mark chapter 1, well, in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, John the Baptist says, I have baptized you with water, but he, talking about Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so notice there, John the Baptist is making a distinction between what's going on in his baptism and what's going on when Christ comes in Christ's baptism. What is the distinction? Listen to it again. 
I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so the distinctive element of this Christian baptism then is that it's wrapped up with the work of the Holy Spirit. And at the very least, this means that there is a close connection between the Spirit's work and baptism. When you go to the John passage where, where you have John the Baptist and Jesus in, in that baptism moment, you see this. It's John chapter 1, verse 33. Again, John the Baptist, he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So again, John the Baptist kind of commenting on Jesus' baptism. He makes two connections with the Spirit in Jesus' baptism. Listen for it. He says, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. So that's the first connection. When Jesus is baptized, the Spirit comes on him. And then he says, With the Holy Spirit. Then he says, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So that's the second connection, that Christ comes and he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' baptism is prominently accompanied by the Spirit, descending on him like a dove. And you see that mentioned in all the synoptic gospels. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then we see John the Baptist again reaffirming that when Jesus comes, the distinctive thing about his baptism, in contrast to John the Baptist's baptism, is that Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So remember what we're doing. We're establishing this principle, a very simple principle. Baptism, Christian baptism, is connected with the work of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, let's continue illustrating the principle. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, it says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, again, he's clearly talking about Pentecost that's coming up. He's clearly talking about Christian baptism. And what does he say about it? He says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So again, baptism is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. And then when you look at what actually happened at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, we see that now explicitly so, that in Christian baptism, at the very least, part of what's going on there is receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the first biblical principle that I want you to see is that baptism is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. The next principle I want you to see is that baptism is connected to cleansing. Baptism is connected to cleansing. Now, the first two weeks of the baptism study, we, we spent a lot of energy looking at the Old Testament baptism, how the, the, the ritualistic or the purification rites of baptism in the Old Testament. And, and what we saw there is that water was used for the rites of purification. And of course, in a natural sense, we all know that water is a universal symbol of purifying. It's a universal symbol of cleansing. And so what I want you to see here is baptism is connected to cleansing. And baptism is specifically described this way both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And so, for example, in the Old Testament, when you look at Ezekiel chapter 36, which is one of those passages that's you know, the prophecies of the new covenant, listen to what it says. Talking about the new covenant, this is Ezekiel 36, 25. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I'm just kind of prophesying about this, you know, this new baptism that will come with, with the new covenant. So I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So what do you see there? Well, you see there a connection between baptism and cleansing. And then when you come to the New Testament, you see these connections as well. And so, for example, in Acts 22, 16, it says, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So there's this cleansing that's happening, this washing away of sins that's happening. And, of course, for those of you who are, who are deeply educated in the gospel of Jesus Christ, your first thought, whether you're Pado or Credo Baptist, your first thought when you read those passages and you wrestle with those passages is you think, wait, 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 I thought in the New Covenant we're cleansed by the blood of Christ. Why is it saying things like we're cleansed by the baptism waters? That's the right question to ask, by the way. That's a great question to ask. And you're right. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ in the sense that we're washed clean, we're forgiven and made righteous by the blood of Christ. All that is, is, is accomplished through what Christ accomplished with his death, burial, and resurrection. 1 John 1, 7 tells us explicitly this very thing. It says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But then I want you to notice how John in 1 John connects the blood of Jesus with the Spirit. And he doesn't just connect the blood of Jesus with the Spirit. He also connects the blood of Jesus with the Spirit and with the waters of baptism. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, when he says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So, look at that verse. What three things are connected? Well, we've got the spirit, the water, and the blood. And then he says at the end of it, these three agree. In other words, the spirit is connected to water, and that water, of course, washes us clean. And those two things, the spirit and the water, are connected to the blood of Jesus Christ the ground of our cleansing, the ground of our forgiveness, the power that forgives us. And so baptism is connected to cleansing. Christ's blood cleanses us, and both the Spirit and the water symbolize this cleansing. And so, remember the first principle, baptism is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit, and now the second principle Baptism is connected to cleansing. Now, let's bring into view the third principle. The third principle is that the Holy Spirit is connected to cleansing. What we see in Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is connected to cleansing. So notice, we've already pointed out that baptism is connected to the work of the Spirit, and baptism is connected to cleansing. Now I want you to see that the Holy Spirit is connected to cleansing. So let's think about the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit's work? 
This is actually a pretty hot debate in American evangelicalism, thanks to you know, the Pentecostals and what they've done. But what is the Spirit's work? And, and let me ask that differently with, with a little hint built in. What is the Holy Spirit's work? Why is he called the Holy Spirit? In other words, it should be no shock to us that the activity of most concern for the Holy Spirit is making us holy, what we call sanctification. This is the Spirit's primary work. He's the Holy Spirit. He's making his people holy. He's sanctifying them. So that means spirit birth, the new birth, regeneration, leads to us becoming holy. And not just to becoming holy, but to even overcoming the world through faith, 1 John 5, 4 says. And so the one who is born again overcomes the world, which is a way of saying the one born again does not conform to the world, but is transformed, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, is transformed by the renewal of their minds so that they can discern the perfect will of God. And so again, remember what we're doing. We're pointing out that the Holy Spirit is connected to cleansing. The Holy Spirit's work is to cleanse us. It's to make us holy. And, and this is really interesting because when you look at 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians were obsessed with subjective spirituality. What we would might, might call in a post-Pentecostal age, Pentecostalism. They were obsessed with charismatic gifts and the use of those charismatic gifts. And notice what Paul says to them. To the Corinthians, obsessed with subjective spirituality, to the Corinthians who think of themselves as spiritual, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. So I think this is connected to cleansing. This is connected to the holy living. You glorify God in your body. And then later, Paul bluntly tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Or to put that in the positive, live more holy. Elsewhere, Paul says to the super spiritual Corinthians that the evidence of the spirit is love. That's the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, which many of you could probably quote. So what does all this add up to? Well, well <clears throat> the point of the Holy Spirit is not charismatic experience. The Holy Spirit is not given primarily for charismatic experience. The Holy Spirit is given to Christians primarily for holiness, for sanctification, the pinnacle of which is love. And again, notice how the Spirit is doing the work of regeneration and renewal. Like we, we see these passages, but I want you to connect it to this concept of how the Holy Spirit is cleansing us, how the Holy Spirit is making us holy. And so, for example, in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, it says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So again, the Holy Spirit, what is His work there? Well, it's the washing of regeneration. The work of the Holy Spirit there is renewal. 
And so the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us holy. It's to cleanse us. It's to purify us. It's to sanctify us. All right, so let's see what we've done. We've, done, we've, we've seen these three principles. We've seen first that baptism is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen second that baptism is connected to cleansing. And third, we've seen that the Holy Spirit is connected to cleansing. And remember where we started. We pointed out that everyone agrees that baptism has symbolism. The, the disagreement is what is primarily being symbolized. And so <clears throat> with that thought in view, let's consider this fourth principle. And that is that in Scripture, the Spirit is poured out. The Spirit is poured out. You see this over and over again. I'm just going to give you a short sampling of this language. Starting in the Old Testament, Isaiah 32:15 talks about how the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. So, how is the Spirit given? He is poured out on us. Isaiah 44:3 says, "For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring." and my blessing on your descendants. And notice there what two things are connected. There it's explicitly connected the pouring out of water on the thirsty land and then the pouring out of the Spirit upon your offspring. Consider again Isaiah 39, 29. It says, I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So again, how is the Spirit given? He is poured out. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. How is the Spirit given? He's poured out. We see this also in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So again, how is the Holy Spirit given? He is poured out. Acts 10, 44 through 48 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So again, how is the Spirit given? <clears throat> he is poured out. All right, so what we've done is tried to establish these four principles. First, baptism is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. Second, baptism is connected to cleansing. Third, the Holy Spirit is connected to cleansing. And then fourth, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And so, so from the, from the Pado baptist thinking, if baptism symbolizes the work of the Spirit... And if the Spirit is poured out, what mode of applying the water best symbolizes the meaning of baptism? So you can kind of see the logic there in the Pado baptist thinking. A baptism that involves pouring water on the individual, or sprinkling, as you see uh, described in the Old Testament, you know, sprinkling or pouring out, best symbolizes how the Spirit comes on us. 
And so to, to represent the Spirit's work, water is applied to that person by pouring it out on them or sprinkling it on them. So that's, that's the first thing, is to see there in the, in the paedo-baptist thinking why the, why, why the sprinkling is done and to see uh, th th that the, the mode of baptism sends signals as to the meaning of baptism, that it symbolizes something, in particular the Holy Spirit coming upon the person. And so with that uh, point, <clears throat> let's move on to, to another point. And remember, all of this is kind of, like we said at the beginning, kind of operating under the banner of maybe the meaning of baptism or the significance of baptism. And so again, operating under that big banner, this, 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 this next point is, is to see that baptism is the sign and seal of the covenant. And you see this language in the Westminster Confession of Faith, that how baptism is the sign and seal of the covenant. And I admit, it took me 10 years to convert from Baptistic thinking to paedo-baptist thinking. It was a 10-year process for me. Um, and, and the single biggest hurdle, and there was many, that's why it took 10 years, <laughs> uh, but maybe the single biggest hurdle was I read the Westminster Confession of Faith, I saw this language about how baptism is the sign and seal, and as a Baptist, I'm, baptism is a sign, sure, but a seal, what does that even mean? What are we talking about here? It, and I couldn't see it in Scripture. It never made sense to me. It took a long time for that to register. And so I want us to think through that, and I don't really know the best way to teach it, because I don't think I've ever been taught it well. That's why it took 10 years. It I think it took 10 years for me to even understand what the confession is saying when it says it, baptism is the, is the seal of the covenant. So let's just try to think through this together, try to understand where this language come from, comes from and what exactly it means, and then we'll close with what it doesn't mean. Okay, so I think there's a couple of stages maybe to think through this well. And I admit this is, you know, this doesn't appeal to Americans because this does not fit in a Twitter, you know, or in a tweet. You know, this takes a little time. It doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, you know. So, so uh, but I think there's some stages to the argument here, trying to understand what, what is meant by the concept that baptism is the seal of the covenant. So I think the first stage is to, to, to do something we've already done in previous weeks, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but is to just go ahead and see how baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And again, I, and I worked through some of this several weeks ago, and so I'm not going to work through it with that level of detail. Again, I kind of point out forget if it was Jewett or Kingdom, the Baptist scholar, one of them explicitly says, yeah, we agree. You know, we, don't have to, we don't have to waste time with that. We, we, we as Baptists agree with this point, that baptism has replaced circumcision. <clears throat> so that maybe this isn't that controversial, but in Genesis 17, first off, just again, listen to, to what's going on here in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. All right, so this is a description here of the Abrahamic covenant. What is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. Who receives the sign of the covenant? You and your offspring. 
And as we read in, in, in the Mosaic law, uh, the covenant sign was applied on the eighth day when, to an infant who was eight days old. And so uh, what we see then is when God made the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant sign was applied to infants and it was carried out as such for thousands of years. This is not odd. This is not a strange notion for the people of God. You know, for thousands of years they applied the covenant sign to infants before they had faith. And so, uh, and we also talked about this several weeks ago, but this is really the, the hinge point of the argument. It's like, you know, why do we not do that anymore? And of course, so, so the, the Baptists are going to have to say something like, well, there's a discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant such that that has changed. And that the covenant sign is no longer applied to infants now. It's only applied to those who have made a profession of faith. The Pado-Baptists are going to have to say, no, there's a continuity between the old and the new such that the covenant sign was applied for thousands of years. The burden of proof is to prove that that's changed. And there's no reason to think it has changed. So that's kind of where the fault lines fall on this debate. That is the issue. And so... How long did the command of God apply in terms of applying the covenant sign to infants? How long or when did this command apply? Well, the Pado baptists look at this question and say, well, it still applies. That the covenant sign is still applied to infants just like it was back from the original covenant with Abraham. And the covenant was for Abraham and his offspring. The Israelites were his offspring, and so it was applied to them. Um, now, the, again, the, in the Baptistic position is going to have to say, no, there's a discontinuity. It's not applied to, to the infants anymore. Um, and again, we worked through this already, you know, with, with kind of the, the level A arguments. The level B arguments, though, you know, I think there's a couple of problems with, with the idea that, well, there, it's no longer applied to infants. The covenant sign is no longer applied to infants. And one is the fact that when you see the Abrahamic covenant given it, it's not just mentioned, but it is emphasized that this is an everlasting covenant. And so, Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout this generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then that's reiterated a few verses later in 17.13. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So the nature of the covenant given to Abraham is that it's an everlasting covenant. It does not expire when Christ comes. It's an everlasting covenant. And then I think the next step then to see is, okay, it's an everlasting covenant. How does that apply in the new covenant with Christ and this is where we see these passages in Galatians 3, which talk about how the descendants of Abraham are those who have Christian faith. So, for example, Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, which is referring to the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. So... So in the Pado baptist thinking, they look at that and say, okay, the, the, the Abrahamic covenant was an everlasting covenant, and then in, in, in Galatians we're told explicitly that it's those who have Christian faith who are the sons of Abraham who are the heirs according to promise. So you kind of look at that and think, okay, well then has the, that part of the covenant been repealed? In other words, the, the application of the covenant signed to infants, has that been repealed? 
has applying the covenant sign to infants been replaced with, with a different way of doing it? And of course, the Pado-Baptists look at that and say, no, it's still binding. The, the application of the covenant to you and your offspring is still binding. And so, just as the Lord's Supper replaced the everlasting sign of the Passover, and just as Sunday Sabbath replaced the everlasting sign of Saturday Sabbath, so too, in the Pado-Baptist thinking, has baptism replaced the everlasting sign of circumcision. <clears throat> and we worked through that. Again, a lot of this is review. I'm just giving new, you know, just different set of arguments for it. We've already worked through the principles of it. And, and, and the primary way to see the handoff between, um, between circumcision and baptism and to see that baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision is that Colossians 2 passage. It's Colossians 2, 11 and 12. We did some you know, little exegetical explanation of that several weeks ago, but the point, so I'm not going to look at that passage again, but what it's saying there is Colossians 2, 12, uh, having been baptized, you have been circumcised. Verse 11. And so you see that uh, side by side, you know, the, the fact that, that baptism is is, is the new sign of the covenant, the counterpart to Old Testament circumcision. But you can, you can get a lot broader than this, and this is, you know, we don't want to just isolate a scripture here or there. And when you look at the whole, you see that there's actually a lot of points of connection between circumcision and baptism. Both are connected with justification by faith. Both are connected with uh, cleansing from defilement. Both are connected to uh, the fact that it's kind of symbolizing the inner experience of heart change. Both are connected in that both are placed on entire households. You know, so, so, so you see, again, not just in the Colossians 2 passage, which I would argue explicitly is saying baptism is replacing circumcision as the sign of the covenant, but you also see just these common threads uh, that are connected to each. Now let's reset for a moment because it's so easy to get lost once you start doing arguments that take several minutes. Don't get lost in what we're arguing. We're trying to show that baptism is the sign and seal of the covenant. Remember, that's what we're supposed to be talking about. So first, just notice what we've done. We've tried to establish that baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. That's all we're doing. That's all we're pointing out right now. Baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. That's the Pado baptist way of looking at it. And so with that, then, we can move to the next stage of the argument. If baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant, then we need to see that circumcision then and baptism now are the sign and seal of the covenant. So here's this language, this often uh, stumbling block language. about Baptism is the seal of the covenant. So where does that language come from? Well, it comes from Romans 4.11. This is where, the, this is where it, in the Westminster Confession of Faith gets the language about how the covenant sign is also a seal. And so, in Romans 4.11, talking about the Abrahamic covenant and the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, here's the language. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that had by faith while he was still, circum still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. 
So you see the explicit language there. Circumcision was thought of as the sign and seal. So again, hopefully you can already kind of you know, see the Pado-Baptist thinking there. Okay, well, there's this continuity between circumcision, it's the Old Testament covenant sign, baptism is the new. And since we're told that the Old Testament covenant sign was the sign and seal of the covenant, then that must mean that the New Testament covenant sign is also the sign and seal of the covenant. In terms of what does this mean? Why do we do this? Well, it's the sign and seal of the covenant. So you see that kind of, you know, that connection, I hope. And so then the question is, well, what does this mean to say it's the seal? So let's think about this. Romans 4.11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal. Okay, well, let's pause there. What's a seal? Well, a seal is something that's applied to an agreement or a contract, like a formal contract. And the seal is supposed to formalize that contract. It's supposed to confirm that contract. And so what was circumcision the seal of? Well, it says, Romans 4.11, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So circumcision was the seal of righteousness. And so a seal of righteousness is a confirmation that he is righteous. And so that means that circumcision was a seal in the sense that it confirmed that he is righteous. It confirms that the person receiving this sign is righteous. Now, then the question becomes, was circumcision the thing that made Abraham righteous? You're saying circumcision, the sign of the covenant, is the seal of righteousness. It's confirming that he was righteous, but was circumcision the thing that made Abraham righteous? And the answer to that is no. Circumcision is not the thing that makes him righteous. To say that circumcision is a seal, to say that the covenant sign is a seal, is not to say it's the thing that makes him righteous. And so circumcision was the sign and seal of righteousness, but it's not the thing that makes him righteous. What is it that makes Abraham righteous? Faith. As we're told in Genesis 15:6, And it's a pretty important passage because Paul quotes it a lot when he's kind of unpacking some of these concepts. And so Abraham is made righteous by faith. You see, justification by faith is not invented with Paul, and it's certainly not invented with Luther. This goes back to Abraham. Genesis 15:6. Abraham is justified by faith. And so Abraham is righteous because of his faith. The sign of the covenant is the seal or the confirmation that he is righteous. Now, here's another question that pops into the mind when you start thinking through this. And that is, okay, well then if circumcision is a sign and seal of righteousness, and that righteousness comes by faith, why does God command that the sign be applied to infants prior to saving faith? You see? And this is not a New Testament question. This is a question for Abraham. This is a question for David, who are applying the covenant sign to their infants. Okay? Think through this question. If circumcision is a sign and seal of righteousness, and righteousness comes by faith, why does God command that the sign be applied to infants prior to saving faith? or prior to the evidence of saving faith. 
And the reason, again, going back to some things we, we laid the groundwork for in previous weeks, the reason is because what we see is that God makes his covenant with people of faith and their children. And so to confirm this, God gave the covenant sign to infants as a seal of the covenant of grace. This is why the covenant sign was applied to infants for thousands of years. It seals the fact of this covenantal relationship between you and your offspring. It seals the fact of a covenantal relationship which always entails responsibility. So you think about a covenant. It's an agreement between multiple parties. And so there's responsibilities for those parties that are in the relationship. So the covenant sign seals the fact of this covenantal relationship. A covenantal relationship that you are now entered into because you've received the sign and seal of the covenant. And now you're in this covenant relationship, which means you now have certain responsibilities. And so that means the covenant relationship can either be fulfilled or it can be rejected. If it's fulfilled through faith, then that means blessing. If it is rejected through unbelief, that means cursing. It's what you see in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. You've got the blessings, you've got the curses. Those who fulfill the covenant receive the blessings. Those who reject the covenant receive the cursings. Of course, Christ comes in and he fulfills all of the covenant perfectly and he then earns all of the blessings, which then become ours through faith. It's kind of a gospel aside. <clears throat> and so, again, we're getting into the weeds here. Sometimes you have to do that with scripture. And notice the argument here goes in stages. So the first part of this, the first stage of the argument is that baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And then the second stage of the argument is that circumcision then and baptism now is the sign and seal of the covenant. And again, we probably need to reinforce the point that the covenant sign is intended for you and your children. The covenant sign is intended for you and your children. And several weeks ago, we, we made this point. We, we read a lot of the passages where we see this connection. We made the covenantal argument that the sign of the covenant was applied to infants, infants in the Old Testament and, and nothing has changed. But let's consider some evidence in the New Testament on why the covenant sign is still applied to infants of believers. And again, I think in doing this, you'll see something of the meaning of baptism. And, and I want us to consider 1 Corinthians 7, really verse 14. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to it. We'll, we'll stay here for a moment. This is a really interesting passage. For, it's a tricky passage for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're credo or pedo. This is a tricky passage to interpret. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, mainly verse 14. Oh my, it's 10.15. Which means we're supposed to leave. All right, so, let's, so we're going to have to do this really quick. I don't know how to do this really quick, though. So just look at this here. Maybe we can give a sketch. 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 13, it says, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy, 
Here's the problem. What does that mean? For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. I want you to notice who's made holy in this passage. There's two people made holy. Okay? The first person made holy is the unbelieving spouse. The second person made holy at the end of verse 14 is the children of at least one believing parent. So then the question, the confounding thought is, what does that mean? In what sense are they holy? And then verse 16, I think, does help clarify. Because verse 16, talking about the unbelieving spouse, says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Pause. So the husband's made holy, but he's not saved. So that means holy, whatever it is, it doesn't mean he's saved. Okay, so verse 16, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So the husband is somehow holy because they're married to a Christian. But does that mean they're automatically saved? No. So what is it talking about? Well, it seems to be then talking about the potential salvation of the unbelieving spouse. They have been made holy, that is, set apart for something. Probably because of their close relationship with the Christian, you know, they're married to him, that that somehow makes them holy, that somehow sets them apart for potential salvation in a unique way that's different from just the ordinary unbeliever. So then the key is to realize that that same thing is said of the child of at least one believing parent. Your children are holy. We see at the end of verse 14. So what does that mean? They're holy. Well, just like we saw with the unbelieving spouse, they're made holy in the sense that they're set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart for potential salvation. And so, as we have to wrap this up, and we're not done, but we're out of time and we have, to, we have to stop, I want you to also notice there is a distinction between the husband and the child. And the distinction is that the husband is made holy, but the child at the end of verse 14 is made holy and clean, katharos. Clean means two things. It either means circumcision of the heart, or it means circumcision of the flesh. Cleansing happens either inwardly or outwardly. And the Pado baptist here would say uh, th this is referring to baptism, just like we saw earlier, this cleansing. Um, they are made holy, they are cleansed, they are set apart for potential salvation. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, we've got two people who are made holy. We've got the unbelieving spouse in verse 14 who is said to be holy, and we've got the children of at least one believing parent at the end of verse 14 who is said to be holy. But you need to notice that there is a difference between the unbelieving spouse and the child of at least one believing parent. And if you look at verse 14, you'll say the unbelieving husband is made holy. But then when it talks about the children of at least one believing spouse, it says that they are holy and clean. In, in particular, it says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And so it's saying the children of at least one believing parent is holy and clean. And so, so that's something extra said about the children of at least one believing parent. And so then you look at that word clean. What does that mean? What, is it to, what does it mean to say that the child of a believing 
parent is holy and clean. Well, that word clean is the Greek word katharos, and, and it's got really two main uses in, uses in the Bible. Uh, one use is this outward covenantal cleansing, uh, this kind of outward ritual cleansing, like we see spoken of in Hebrews 9.13. And the other meaning is this inward cleansing, like we see spoken of in passages like Acts 15.9 or 1 John 1, 7 and 9. And this is talking about regeneration or an inward heart change. And so, um, <clears throat> going back to 1 Corinthians 7.14, when it says that, the, that the, the child of at least one believing parent is holy and clean, what does it mean to say that they are clean? What is it saying about them? What's it talking about? Well, there's two uses of clean, and we know it's not talking about the inward cleansing. We know it's not talking about uh, regeneration because children of believers are not automatically saved. And we see even in verse 16 when it's talking about the one who's holy, the, the unbelieving spouse, is talking about potential salvation, not actual salvation. And so this child at the end of verse 14, um, it's not talking about the inward work of regeneration. Some receive the sign of the covenant, but then stray from and reject their baptism into the covenant by straying from the faith. And this is what's being talked about in Hebrews 6, 1 through 5, and in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. Therefore, when 1 Corinthians 7, 14 says the children of believers are holy and clean, are holy and catharos, well, the word clean there means they are baptized. So this not only reinforces the practice of baptizing the children of believers, but it also tells us something about baptism, that baptism is about receiving the sign and seal of the covenant. And there's something else to consider here, kind of reinforcing how the covenant sign is intended for you and your children. And that is this passage in Galatians. It's in Galatians 3, verses 25 through chapter 4, verse 1. And Paul says this, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so notice it's now talking about those who were baptized into Christ. And then it goes on this long list, starting in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are... Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. And so notice what this is saying. It says in verse 27, you know, we're given this heading, as many of you as were baptized into Christ. It then in verse 28 begins listing all those who are part of the Abrahamic covenant and thus to be baptized. And we see specifically listed in chapter 4, verse 1, children. And so again, on what basis are we to exclude the children of believers when we are explicitly told that they are heirs of the covenant? If those in verses 28 and 29 are baptized members, well, then so is the child mentioned in chapter 4, verse 1. And so in verse 28, Jews who belong to Christ are said to be part of the Abrahamic covenant and heirs according to promise. Then in verse 29, well, what promise? Well, it's the promise given to Abraham. And who was that promise given to? 
what was given to you and to your descendants. And thus in the Old Testament, they applied the sign of circumcision to their children. So then when, when a Jew or someone who has a deep knowledge of the Old Testament reads Galatians three twenty-eight through 4, 1, what is the most natural reading of the text? Well, certainly not that all of a sudden children are excluded from receiving the sign of the covenant. In fact, there's not one word in the New Testament that says that the children should all of a sudden, after thousands of years, be excluded from receiving the covenant sign. And so again, we see that baptism is about receiving the sign and seal of the covenant, and it's intended for believers and their children. Now, as we close, um, let's, let's kind of anticipate a, a common misunderstanding about the paedo-baptist position. We'll kind of close with this. You know, paedo-baptism is often mischaracterized as saying that a baptized believer is elect and automatically saved and will automatically receive final salvation. But this is not the case. The Westminster Confession of Faith doesn't teach this. The Reformed Confessions don't teach this. The child is baptized into the covenant promises. And as we saw earlier, as they grow up in the covenant, they will either affirm those promises or they will reject those promises. This pattern is seen in the Old Testament where those who fulfill their side of the covenant receive blessings and those who disobey their side of the covenant receive cursings. It's outlined in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. In other words, a baptized child must still be converted. They must still be regenerated and have saving faith in the Lord. And so we say this in conclusion, baptism is a gift of God, whether for a professing Christian or the child of believing parents. It does not internally change the person's heart but brings the person into the covenant of God with all its privileges, promises, blessings, and curses. It is a sign of what Jesus has done, washed his church. And it's a sign of what Jesus will do for everyone who trusts him. This does not mean all who are baptized are saved or will become believers. It means they have the promise of God. And they participate in the covenant community where God's spirit dwells and where God's people dwell. Those who are baptized as infants have the privilege of being raised in God's covenant. And what are those privileges? Well, they know from an early age that they belong to him. In their life, they will either affirm or reject the covenant promises. If they are converted and walk by faith, they receive the blessings of the covenant. If they disobey the Lord, they receive the cursings of the Lord. All who are baptized must believe the promises of God and walk by faith. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.